Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I'm Dr. Greg Sherman, Chief Medical Officer for NACE. Joining me today for a discussion on the management of psoriasis in light of current guidelines, available treatments, and of course, the COVID-19 pandemic is Dr. Adam Friedman. Adam is a professor and interim chair of dermatology, residency program director, director of translational research, and the director of supportive oncodermatology in the Department of Dermatology at the George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C. I'm really excited to spend a few minutes with him today to hear insights on how we can truly do a better job in managing our patients with psoriasis, given the expanding number of treatment options and the current pandemic. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me, Greg. Great to be here. Adam, really glad that you could join me as well. As you well know, our understanding of the pathophysiology of psoriasis has progressed rapidly over the last several years, leading to many new classes of medication and a variety of treatment options. We've also known for years that this is truly a systemic condition and that recognizing this early truly allows us to offer our patients a much more targeted approach and hopefully lead to better outcomes. Since our primary care colleagues are often the first point of contact with these patients, and they might actually be the only ones providing that dermatologic care, it's really critical that they stay up to speed on how to appropriately evaluate these patients, recognize when to refer, and probably most importantly, also co-manage those patients when they're also under the care of a dermatologist. So Adam, I was hoping to start off our discussion today by having you sort of put the physical and mental impact of psoriasis into perspective for us compared to other chronic conditions that we see every single day, we may not truly appreciate that impact. So maybe you could clarify for us. Sure. And that's, that's a great place to start. So even taking a step back, all chronic skin diseases have probably an extra level of burden, both physical and emotional on the patient, because they're visible. And you have to understand that, especially with a chronic inflammatory disease and, and psoriasis being kind of a poster child for this, the potential for social ostracism, for misperceptions, you know, for example, uh, someone riding a bus with psoriasis, people kind of move away from them because they see a pink scaly plaque, assuming it has to be infectious, just adds extra burden. It could actually even exacerbate disease because we know there is a strong mind-body connection. Now, the good news is we have a lot of data to support exactly what you just said, that many of these conditions, psoriasis, once again, being a poster child, uh, has an extraordinary burden on the patient, even more so than very common medical conditions, such as congestive heart failure, diabetes, high blood pressure, um, various different research-validated tools, such as DLQI measurements, showing that psoriasis really outmatches many of these common uh, medical problems. So walking through the door knowing that there is an extraordinary burn on these patients will enable you to partner with them better because this is going to be a lifelong partnership. This is a chronic disease we cannot cure, we can only manage. And I think that's really critical because I'm sure many of us don't truly appreciate the significance and we're so in tune with diabetes and hypertension and heart failure that we're really driven to those, but this is really probably impacting them more. So many of us are really comfortable if we see a patient that walks in with a clear silver scaling large plaque, that's psoriasis. But as you and I have spoken before, it's not that clear all the time. So right. <laughs> I think hearing from you some of the pearls that you, you see when you evaluate your patients, how do you get to the right diagnosis when it's not that obvious? And when might you consider a biopsy? 
Right. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if patients conferred with the textbooks to make sure their presentations <laughs> were were of really course, consistent? And uh, yeah, I, I would argue inflammatory skin diseases never do that. Atypical is typical. So I, I think there are some common themes that can be helpful. So first off, location. Um, psoriasis tends to be symmetric. It tends to affect extensor surfaces, areas that can uh, be associated with trauma or rubbing. As psoriasis is one of those conditions that friction or injury, what's called kebnerization, can induce an actual plaque. So areas like elbows, hands, feet, knees, buttocks, lower back are kind of classic locations. It's also important to know about the kind of subtypes of psoriasis. SIBO psoriasis, for example, that affects the scalp, ears, T-zone of the face. Uh, there's also inverse psoriasis affecting the inframammary folds, the axilla, the groin, uh, and also nail psoriasis. And I just want to harp on nail psoriasis because let's say, and more often than not, this is going to be true, you have a case that you're not really sure about. You want to look for other areas that may help solidify that diagnosis. And so some of the classic nail findings like pits, like oil spots, which are kind of like salmon orange, uh, circular appearing spots on the nails, distal onycholysis, separation of the nail plate from the nail bed, giving it a yellow discoloration. That might help put you over the edge in terms of thinking of psoriasis versus something else. I will say importantly, though, you mentioned the silvery scale, which yes, that adherence scale can be very helpful. And there's actually something called auspice sign. When you pull that little piece of scale, you should get a pinpoint of blood due to the fragility of those superficial capillaries in the dermis. Um, however, in areas like the body folds, you may not see that scale simply because of that, an, that location and anatomy. So don't always rely on the scale. But you know, you bring up a good point. When do you decide to biopsy? Well, it's when you kind of scratch your head and say, I don't really know what this is. And, and, and really the pearls I'm going to give are what not to do. It's really important to try and avoid certain location with biopsies, hands, feet, elbows, and scalp because of the fact that when you biopsy those locations, inherently there's some unique features that will make the histologic appearance altered. You'll get this report, psoriasiform spongiotic dermatitis, which literally means psoriasis eczema, and it really won't help you that much. So really aim for areas on the trunk and also untreated areas. You do not want to biopsy something that has been treated with any anti-inflammatory for at least two to three weeks. Really, that's I, I never heard that before. And so that really, you know, would force us before we even initiate treatment or I guess say, well, I want to biopsy. So stop all your therapy and, you know, see you back in three to four weeks and then uh, biopsy again. Um well, you don't have to be cruel. You could say maybe one small area <laughs> that you don't <laughs> leave untreated. Um, you know, but but yeah, actually, th th what you've described is something we do quite often because very often patients will come in. Maybe they were into the emergency room. Maybe they saw another doctor, and they were given uh, maybe it's a tube of triamcinolone. They've been treatises. If you biopsy a partially treated area, you're not going to get the full picture. So it's worth that investment of time to really get your answer if you're going to take a piece of skin. So will your biopsy on an untreated area give you a definitive diagnosis or will you still be left scratching your head? Well, the, the hope is, is yes, one way or another, that if you're biopsying, let's say from the trunk, uh, let's say, uh, you know, the area has not been treated. One would hope that you would see that very classic psoriasiform hyperplasia of the epidermis, the very classic compact stratum corneum, the top layer of the skin, and thinning of the, the dermal papillary plate that really would clinch that diagnosis. 
Also, the flip side is true. You would hope to see features of other skin conditions, the patterns that would push you towards another condition if, if that's what's really found on the biopsy. So that would be the hope. So our understanding of immunopathophysiology of psoriasis has grown dramatically over the last several years, multiple new treatment options. And I think it's important to understand the treatment options to really understand the pathophysiology. And I know this can be a extensive discussion, but I'm wondering if you can really review briefly for our colleagues that are listening, the key components driving this inflammation process so that they can sort of understand what's next, what's currently available and what's on the horizon. Sure. Absolutely. And you're right. That could be a two hour lecture in, in, in itself. But I think to start off, let's clarify what psoriasis is and isn't. And I, I very often have patients coming and saying, oh, I have an autoimmune disease. Psoriasis is not autoimmune. It's probably more in the autoinflammatory category. What I mean by that is for some reason, inflammation is turned on and it just can't shut down. The beginning of the story is what's a little unclear. There's some stimulus. It's probably a mix of nature, some external forces as well. So genetics and, and the outside world that will really annoy the local immune milieu in the skin. You know, the local players, the innate lymphoid cells, antigen presenting cells, and that this stimulus will then send those cells, specifically antigen presenting cells, to the lymph node to wake up sleeping T cells and polarize them. Now what we believe more towards a TH17 response. We used to think about TH1, but now we think it's more TH17. And the signal that's doing this is interleukin-23. The reason I bring this up is because that is a target for some of our therapies. Once these T cells are polarized, they home back to the skin, they start churning out interleukin-17, interleukin-22, and even TNF-alpha, uh, which is also a TH1 cytokine. Why am I bringing these up? Once again, these are all targets for some of our biologics, uh, but also this pathway is really impacted by some of our small molecule inhibitors as well. Now, while this sounds very linear, it is cyclical. And as those cells home to the skin, as they're churning out those signals, they phone friends. They are sending now, once again, cells back to the lymph node, signals back to the lymph node in order to keep polarizing those sleeping T cells towards that pathway and infiltrate the skin as well as other organ systems, which is why this is a systemic disease with multiple comorbidities. But that is a very simplistic kind of view of it, but it gives you some insight in terms of why are certain drugs targeting certain elements? The wake-up signal, which is IL-23, and really the main instigator of injury, IL-17, that's in the skin and other locations. Adam, you're right. That is an abbreviated version, but I think very helpful. <laughs> I, I, I do want to let our listeners know that you can access an enduring CME activity that actually Adam and I just recorded as part of another live program on psoriasis that really goes into much more detail. And there's uh, slides and charts that you can see. It's available at nasonline.com. You can access this and many other programs we've developed on other topics. You can register for one or more of the live conferences that NACE produces every single year. If you're on Facebook, please like us and we'll be able to share more educational content and information with you as well. Adam, let's talk a little bit about comorbidities and what's truly important to screen for. And as I think about this as a primary care physician, uh, I also wonder if if we have comorbidities, do, uh, does aggressive management of the skin impact these comorbidities? And maybe conversely, does aggressive management of comorbidities impact the patient's psoriasis? Where are we at with that discussion? 
Yeah, th- those are fantastic questions. So first off, what one could argue uh, psoriasis is associated with every possible comorbidity you can imagine. And that'd be an unfair statement, passing that buck back to the primary care physician to check for everything. So yeah, let's focus in on what we really know and really needs to be evaluated. So first and foremost, psoriatic arthritis. Um, roughly a third to a half of patients will develop this disabling destructive arthritis. And there are some very simple tools to screen for early signs of disease because that's where we want to catch patients. We don't want them with arthritis mutilans and their hands kind of like this when they come in. We want to get them early and intervene. And absolutely, initiating systemic therapy early will make a huge difference and limit disease and maybe even reverse early signs of disease. So the tool I like is it's as simple as PSA, the acronym for psoriatic arthritis. Pain in joints for no rhyme or reason. S is for stiffness at rest. And this is not waking up in the morning and feeling a little stiff because you worked out the day before. This is stiffness that takes a good 30 minutes to really feel like your baseline. And then the other part of that S is swelling or sausage digits, once again, for no rhyme or reason. The A is for axial or spine involvement, usually lower back pain uh, during the nighttime, not during the day. So very simple questions you can ask the patient to assess if maybe they're headed in the direction of psoriatic arthritis. I also say that nail involvement and scalp involvement are also risk factors for developing psoriatic arthritis. The other really big ones are going to be CVD. So cardiovascular disease, um, and, and we do recommend that patients with moderate severe psoriasis uh, be evaluated. And I think from the primary care perspective, I would bump up your, your kind of severity score about like, you know, we, we say like a 1.5 multiplier when adapting CV risk scores for your psoriatics. Um, others include metabolic syndrome, mental health. You know, I mentioned the kind of emotional and social impact before, but we know that psoriasis is an independent risk factor for multiple psychiatric diseases, uh, including uh, severe depression. And we also recommend screening for inflammatory bowel disease. Those are really the big ones to think about. There are many others, but those have really the, the hardiest evidence supporting uh, using screening tools. Now, to the question is, can we help prevent these or, or mitigate them? As we know, for example, with hypertension, poorly controlled psoriatics, their hypertension is also harder to manage. There's, there's data on this. There is emerging evidence, especially out of NIH, showing that using systemic therapies can mitigate these comorbidities, but maybe even reverse damage. There's some really beautiful studies looking at the injury to the endothelium, you know, think about vascular disease and this being reversed over time using biologics. Fascinating. I think that's a fascinating thing. And we've been talking about this for years, but I, I think it's amazing that that data is coming to fruition to hopefully demonstrate that, that impact. Um, I think one of the important things that we started off this discussion is how do we actually treat these patients? And you talked about Im- immunopathophysiology before. And I think with that, uh, those thoughts in mind, I'd like to get into treatment recommendations, especially in light of COVID-19 and how that's affected how we care for our patients. And probably for most of our clinicians listening, they're dealing with topical therapy first. So maybe you could just address key pearls for topical steroid use, non-steroidal topical therapies. What's the guidance there? Yeah. You know, topical therapy will be part of your algorithm no matter what other therapies you choose or choose not to use. Um, so along those lines, my, my philosophy is go strong or go home. 
The issues that come up with topical steroids from a safety perspective, skin thinning or lightening, comes with chronicity of use. Even more extreme adverse events in terms of HP access suppression from systemic absorption, once again, comes with using too much over extended periods of time. So the idea is we want to knock this back and knock it back quickly. So I tend to use class one steroids twice a day to affected areas on the trunk, on the body, the more sensitive areas like the face, the genitals, or body folds. I may go a little weaker, probably like a class four. And you want to use these for roughly two to three weeks until you get really flattening and clearance of those lesions. Now realize you stop everything. This is a chronic disease. It's going to come back. So you need a maintenance arm as well. And there are a couple ways to do this. One would be pulse dosing, meaning going from that twice a day, every day for three weeks, you then go to just weekend dosing or maybe twice a week dosing. The other thing you could do, and this is where the non-steroidals come in, things like calcineurin inhibitors, pimecrolimus or tacrolimus, on the days you're not using the topical steroid, you use one of those, which you can use really religiously and ongoing without real safety concerns. I realize there is a black box warning on these. Um, in the dermatology community, it's kind of like the Easter bunny or I don't know, Sasquatch. We don't really believe in it. And there's plenty of data to support <laughs> that that black box warning is bogus. There's not been a single reported of post-marketing lymphoma associated with their use in, in the last 20 years. Um, so that that's one approach for management, because if you stop everything, it will come back. The other kind of you know maintenance approach is, is halcipatrine, vitamin D analogs, uh, which we do have combo products of a topical steroid like betamethasone and calcipatrine all in one, but you can separate them and maybe Monday through Friday, calcipatrine once or twice a day. On the weekends, to the areas where the patient typically gets disease, they can use a topical steroid. So I think about yin and yang. You hit it hard when it's there, mm-hmm. when it resolves, then you kind of back off and go with more mild approaches. Great. So what about systemic therapy? Because we talked about this being a systemic disease. And if there's significant amount of disease, that patient's going to need something more than that topical. Given all the treatment options, is there a go-to, a first line or approach that we should be aware of? That is the million dollar question that I get all the time, because we live in a day and age where you have almost too many therapies. And that's a wonderful problem to have. So if you just look back 20, 30 years ago, all we had were drugs like methotrexate, cyclosporin, which certainly work, but come with a lot of baggage. So it, it really has to be tailored to the patient. So we, we have a fleet of these biologics, these monoclonal antibodies that target the molecular underpinnings of this disease. Now, each one of them come with different pros and cons. Um, some are approved for both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, where others only have approval for plaque disease. Some require injections, maybe every other week, once a month, or maybe every eight weeks or 12 weeks. So I think there are some basic questions that help guide that decision. Uh, Probably the first one, sadly, is what insurance do you have? I mean, isn't it incredible that we are forced to think about that as physicians? It's nuts. Um, But second to that, yeah, right. You know, but second to that, I I ask about the comfort level of a patient with self-injections. So if a patient's like, this is a non-starter for me, uh, it may push me towards one that has infrequent dosing. So it wouldn't be a burden on my practice to bring them in maybe four times a year to physically give the patient the injection. 
Certainly, I screen for psoriatic arthritis. So if I'm seeing early signs, I may lean to a class that has more history and more support for managing both conditions like an IL-17 or a uh, TNF blocker versus an an IL-23 or IL-12 and 23 blocker. But those are really the big ones. But sadly, you know, as I mentioned from from the get-go, the best medication is often the one you can get for the patient. The good news is there are a lot of patient support programs available through the various companies, um, as well as specialty pharmacies that can help navigate through the rigmarole of those approvals. And then the last point I'm thinking about is what are the real goals of therapy? So if our colleagues are seeing these patients, what are sort of the patient improvement goals to say, okay, this patient is not where they should be. You need to add more therapy, increase your intensity, or refer. What should they have in mind? Yeah, those are great questions. So if you're thinking about topical therapy, and that's where your starting point is, if after three weeks roughly of twice a day dosing, you're not making a dent, I can guarantee you four weeks, five weeks, six weeks isn't going to do much either. So that could be an indication that you need to escalate, whether it be phototherapy, whether it be a small molecule inhibitor or a biologic. Now, thinking about a a systemic agent, when to decide if it's working or not, a biologist can be slow. Now, there are some that will have a clinical impact relatively early in a matter of weeks, um, but we typically will say three months is your real time point to decide whether it's cutting it or not. Now, there are acceptable outcomes in terms of a a 70% reduction in overall disease burden or 3% body surface area involved. But really, according to the National Psoriasis Foundation guidelines, we are treating to target. We are treating to clearance. And what we really want to see is less than 1% body surface area involved, a substantial improvement from day zero at three months. Now, me personally, I'll usually wait till around five months to decide whether I'm going to switch to another biologic or add something on. But a good time point to bring them back in is is three months in, because if you bring them in too early with the understanding that, oh, I expect to see some major improvement, they're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. I will sometimes bring patients in one month in just to make sure they're tolerating the medication, they're injecting correctly, they're not spraying it all over the place and getting everywhere but but subcutaneously. Um, but really, I wa- it's important to give those realistic expectations because that will improve compliance because they think they're going to get better in a week from then. They're not, and they're going to stop therapy and, and lose faith, unfortunately. And, and how have you managed uh, your treatment in, in light of COVID? Has anything changed? Yeah. So I, from the get-go, and granted, this was all theoretical. I'm really glad that that I bet on this. Um but uh, I, I didn't stop anything. My, my thinking, based on what we understood, the real complications associated with COVID-19 infection being the cytokine storm, the inflammatory response to the infection, my belief was that by mitigating inflammation in those who already have a propensity for an exuberant immune response, that that actually would be a good thing, and that undertreated psoriatics would actually have worse outcomes. This is all theoretical, and uh, the good news is data has supported this. Uh, there are several studies, probably the largest is roughly with 1,100 patients from Italy, showing that moderate severe psoriasis patients on a biologic had better COVID-19 outcomes, fewer hospitalizations, fewer fatalities than those who were not treated. But I will tell you, a lot of colleagues early on call all their biologic patients, say, stop immediately, this is going to increase your risk really with, with no foundation. And I get that fear. I get it. We, mm-hmm. this was a totally new thing for all of us, but 
follow the data. And we do have some some nice registry data, not even just Durham, in rheumatology, in GI, because those specialties use biologics as well. And they all say the same thing, that these do not increase the risk for poor outcomes. In fact, they may actually protect patients. Fabulous. That's great to know. And uh, hopefully our colleagues at home are listening carefully and encourage their patients to stay on those medicines now, especially. Absolutely. Adam, this has been terrific. I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and share your expertise on how we can do a better job of caring for our patients with psoriasis. I think the information has been really great. And hopefully our colleagues listening will be able to take it and make a real uh, difference in their lives of their patients they're caring for. Thanks for having Greg. Always a pleasure. If you're interested in learning more about psoriasis, go to the NACE website at naceonline.com and register for our enduring activities on psoriasis or any other program we have developed. Please like us on Facebook at NACE CME to be part of our online social media community and get access to the content and programs that we share. I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. I hope you've learned something new you can bring back to your practice, and we look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the near future. Thank you.